Welcome back to GI Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast, where I read the journals so you don't have to. This is episode 41 for the month of June 2020. A big thanks to all of you who've left reviews on iTunes and other podcast apps. This really helps to spread the word and let others discover the podcast. And if you have articles that you think I should read, please send them to info at gipearls.com or find me on Twitter at gi underscore pearls. And now let's crack open those journals, shall we? This is interesting. Do you take out small polyps with a snare or with cold forceps? I guess that depends on how small. I am hopeful that you play your part in the cold snare revolution and never remove these hot. What about 4 to 9 millimeter polyps? And this next study in GIE looks at what people are actually doing in terms of removing these with forceps or snares. The guidelines recommend that we remove all these with a snare. And this was a survey-based study where they asked 26 endoscopists what do they use to remove small polyps, meaning biopsy forceps or is it a cold snare that you use? Then they retrospectively checked if the answer put down by the endoscopist matched reality. Most respondents said that they used cold snare polypectomy to remove small polyps, as they should. The reality was quite different. And based on review of colonoscopy reports, about half of the small polyps were removed using cold biopsy forceps instead. Now, I've seen some endoscopists use cold biopsy forceps for things that are probably be pretty easy to remove with a cold snare, and they probably should switch. But in this study, I feel like it's all a matter of definition, meaning what is it that you consider to be a small polyp? I do use biopsy forceps a lot, mostly for tiny things like one to two millimeter things, but sometimes it's hard to remove even a three millimeter polyp where the snare just doesn't engage, as it happens in rectum a lot, where the polyp is small, and you kind of sometimes end up shearing off the polyp instead of really snaring it out. And then you end up looking for it in a trap for half an hour. So while there is a discrepancy in what people say they do and what they actually do, we should probably use cold snare for all 4 to 9 millimeter polyps. For smaller things, I don't think we care that much. A quick aside, some people actually removed 9 millimeter polyps with cold forceps. I guess Sisyphus was a gastroenterologist after all. This is back from April issue of Gastro, but it is important. It is the new guidelines on management of moderate to severe ulcerative colitis. And instead of ranting, I just cover this guideline. Or should I keep ranting? Ulcerative colitis is no fun at all, and almost a fifth of patients end up in the hospital at first presentation, and up to 15% lose their colon to the disease. So let's first define what we mean by moderate to severe ulcerative colitis. This guideline uses TrueLove and WITS criteria and Mayo scoring system for UC to score disease severity. What defines disease as more aggressive is known to every GI doc when they see it, having more than six bowel movements per day, frequent blood and stool, maybe even a fever, drop in hemoglobin, ESR over 30. These guidelines are least because we have so much more stuff to treat patients with and they have been overdue. There are 11 guidance statements that we will review here. There's also a technical review that follows it by Sid Singh and Jess Allegretti, which is very good. Statement 1. You should probably use biologic or tofacitinib over no treatment. 2. AGA suggests that for biologic-naive patients, you start with infliximab or venalizumab versus adalimumab, unless patient objects. As far as tofacitinib is concerned regarding induction of remission, don't do it unless it's part of a registry or trial. By the way, FDA only allows you to use TOFA in patients who fail anti-TNF anyway, so if that's the case, 
okay, use Tofa. Or you can also use Eustokinumab if patients were exposed to infliximab in the past. Specifically, this conditional recommendations don't reach for vedolizumab in these patients, but rather use Eustokinumab or Tofa. Conditional recommendation. Three, don't use tiopurian monotherapy unless you can't do anything else. And forget about methotrexate monotherapy entirely. It just doesn't work. Four, for outpatients with moderate to severe UCE, use biologic monotherapy versus tiopurian monotherapy to induce remission. This is kind of an offshoot of guideline statement number three, and no opinion is given on maintenance of remission here. Five, combining biologics and thiopurines or methotrexate rather than monotherapy of either kind is conditionally recommended. Six, this is important. Don't do step-up therapy. Go straight for biologics. This is probably where insurance is giving us the biggest grief, so thankfully this is part of guidelines. 7. If you achieve remission on biologics, you can probably stop 5-ASA if you had patients on it before. 8. Now let's talk about what happens in the hospital. For acute severe ulcerative colitis, use methylprednisolone, 40-60 to 60 mg IV, total daily dose. 9. Don't use antibiotics to treat IBD. 10. If steroids don't work, use infliximab or cyclosporine. 11. No recommendation on what intensity or dose of infliximab is best. Very important note, the only strong recommendation in the whole document is the first one. Biologics versus no therapy for moderate to severe UC is probably a good idea. Everything else is either conditional or low-grade evidence. I like this guideline a lot, mostly because it's not very definitive and just shows how little we really know about IBD. Most of the quality of evidence is again low or even very low, and that is a stark contrast to how confident we often feel when making clinical decisions. And it feels like we have a lot more evidence that we really do for decisions that we're making for our patients. So go forth and treat IBD based on these updated guidelines. Let's talk a little bit about liver disease. Now, when you have a patient with cirrhosis, it is often prudent to tell them to start exercising at least a little bit. Resistant training is one of the ways to do it. And the question is, does it really work? And the answer is yes, it probably does, at least in terms of improving muscle mass. This was a prospective study of 39 patients with cirrhosis, child A or B, who were randomly assigned to a group of one hour of supervised exercise three times a week for 12 weeks or control with no change in daily activity. And after 12 weeks, they looked at the muscle strength. And no surprise, the folks that exercised were way stronger. Now, why is it important? For one thing, it shows that if you really exercise when you have cirrhosis, you can improve your performance status. So that's great. And this is great because as Elliot Tapper and others have shown us, frailty, if anything, predicts mortality in patients with cirrhosis. The study did involve improving nutrition of these patients by giving them more protein which is another important part of treatment plan for cirrhosis patients. Now, does this prove exercise improve mortality? Heck no, this study is way too small for that, but it's certainly a step in the right direction. I like it. Maybe last year I reviewed a meta-analysis that basically said that HCV eradication doesn't improve mortality overall. And some have argued that this is good reason not to screen for hepatitis C in the general population. And while I agree that treating many asymptomatic, non-serotic patients is probably not going to change much, 
in special populations where liver health is already affected, there may be a benefit, such as maybe less transplants, maybe less mortality, who knows. This brings up an interesting paper published by Elliot Tapper in CGH in the month of May. And this guy, of course, is good at asking great clinical questions. Now, does hepatitis C eradication, does this affect what happens to the development of hepatic encephalopathy? So they looked at six years worth of data retrospectively, and what they found here is interesting. DAA therapy for HCV was associated with lower risk of developing hepatic encephalopathy. This is important because if you have cirrhosis and develop hepatic encephalopathy, it's often game over for you clinically. So if there is something we can do to prevent it, we definitely should do it. And one may argue that if we spend as much energy that we spend on treating encephalopathy on preventing it, our patients will be in much better shape. So long story short here is if we achieve a cure of hepatitis C, your risk of hepatic encephalopathy does go down. Numbers here are 75% reduction without cirrhosis and 64% reduction if you already have cirrhosis. And something that's even more interesting to me, if you have cirrhosis and develop hepatic encephalopathy, and then go get your hepatitis C cured with direct acting antivirals, you are much more likely to get off medications for hepatic encephalopathy. And that is great news because those medications are either really terrible, like lactulose, or really expensive, like rifaximin. So treating HCC in patients with cirrhosis is totally worth it, at least from the perspective of reducing hepatic encephalopathy risk. And while we are on the topic of hepatic encephalopathy, let's talk about one more thing. One of the favorite things to do for docs evaluating encephalopathy is checking ammonia levels. And everyone is super happy when it's high, because it feels good to have a target to go after. But as we GI docs know, this is a fool's errand. This next study from doctors Mona Hodge and Don Rocky from Medical University of South Carolina is very cool. They looked specifically at cirrhosis patients admitted for management of hepatic encephalopathy over 10 years at their center and looked at patients with encephalopathy who had ammonia levels checked on admission high versus low. Their endpoint was total amount of lactulose given in the first 48 hours. Looking at around 300 patients with elevated ammonia versus 200 with normal ammonia, and long story short, there was no difference in amount of lactulose that the patients had received if the ammonia levels were elevated versus normal. I found this to be a little bit surprising as I thought that clinicians would react to high ammonia by bombing their patients with high-dose lactulose treatments. Turns out not to be true. One of the outcomes timed the resolution of hepatic encephalopathy in patients with high versus normal ammonia level was not different. Also, there was no difference in resolution even if you forgot to check ammonia levels, which tells you a lot. But why do we still keep checking ammonia levels? I mean, it's 2020 already. Why did it take so long for us to realize this? I think we knew about this decades ago. Say you do a colonoscopy on a 40-year-old and you find a large adenoma, say 13 millimeters or so. You remove it and everything looks good. When do you bring them back? The real question I'm asking here is, is this young patient, are they at an increased risk of having polyps or colon cancer? turns out that some endoscopists bring these patients back too soon. The thought being that maybe because these patients are young, they may be at an increased risk for other things happening to them, like colon cancer. So this next study from GIE looked at patients who had at least one polyp on index exam resected away. What was the risk of them having another large polyp or serrated polyp compared to older adults? Turns out that younger adults below the age of 40 
had a lower risk of having another large polyp found on repeat exam compared to folks over the age of 60. Between ages of 40 and 50, the risk was still lower than if they were over 60. So the younger you were, the lower was the risk. So I think what this tells us is that if you find a polyp in a young person, you shouldn't treat them more aggressively, meaning repeating colonoscopies more often, than a patient who is over 60. And the authors basically say as much, you should follow the guidelines established for folks over the age of 50 for these young people. This is a very timely paper, since many patients are getting colonoscopies in their 40s now, based in part on the recommendation from the American Cancer Society to start screening at age 45. There's also evidence that GI docs treat young folks more aggressively, based on the data in this paper at least, and it appears that there is no reason to do so. What's the prevalence of IBD? Hard to do large population studies, but they are done. This one looked at the population of the UK and looked at the patterns of IBD epidemiology. Over the past two decades, there is a steady rise in the number of people living with IBD, with prevalence increasing 2-3% to per year. So on average, 0.97, or about 1 in 100 people, have IBD in the United Kingdom. And this study predicts that the numbers is going to be above 1% at around 1.1 by year 2025. Incidence of both IBD and Crohn's disease is relatively stable, however. Interesting fact is that the incidence of diagnosis of IBD in patients over 50 is actually declining. There was also no decline in the rates of colorectal cancer over the past two decades in these patients, which is a bit of a surprise to me. And there is an increased risk of death if you have a diagnosis of IBD as well. Interesting. So FIT and FOBT testing should only be used for colon cancer screening, at least that's what they're approved for. And there are a lot of us who are against using these tests for any other indication. And we've gotten to good arguments to support our logic here. So I was very surprised when this meta-analysis popped up looking at FIT and fecal occult blood testing as a diagnostic tool for some clinical indications. But people from Yale, where this study was done, are pretty smart. So I figured I'll give it a read. And I'm glad I did. Here's the scoop. This was a meta-analysis looking at 22 studies which looked at use of FIT and GWAG-based tests for non-colon cancer screening indications. First, for iron deficiency anemia, about 10 studies for both FIT and GWAG from all over the world. And here's the kicker. What was the sensitivity and specificity of using such tests to find something to explain anemia? It was all over the place for each study, and combined, it was 0.58 for sensitivity and 0.84 for specificity. A truly terrible test. Didn't matter guayac or fit, both terrible for this indication. How about ulcerative colitis? And again, the same thing, with test characteristics all over the place and combined sensitivity for detecting UC using fit or guayac is 0.72 and specificity of 0.8. Someone used it for acute diarrhea, and you get the point. Low specificity sensitivity of finding something. The idea of a test like this, as I understand, is to prevent doing unnecessary testing. Say you have iron deficiency anemia or something like that, and you get an FOBT test, and it's negative. Aha, you say. It's not GI source, and you move on. The problem is you will miss 17% of patients who have colon cancer with this strategy. That's really bad. Going further with this, FOBT is not useful for identifying bleeding sources proximal to the colon, which is why if your patient has a positive FOBT or FIT and you do a colonoscopy and it's normal, 
you don't jump to an EGD, that is a complete waste and completely unsupported by evidence. Also, there are studies showing that gastric cancer detection, as an example, were not different between positive and negative fit patients. Aha! So this is a very, very, very good study. Thanks Mindy Lee from Yale for doing it. Now, if we have more hospitals to stop doing fit testing on inpatients with anemia, that would be amazing. Oh, and how timely this next paper is. The title is Low Incidence of Aerodigestive Cancers in Patients with Negative Results from Colonoscopies, Regardless of Findings from Stool DNA Tests. And it is published in CGH. This study looked at over a thousand patients at three medical centers who had a colonoscopy and looked at patients who had a negative result versus those who had a positive stool DNA test. So was there a difference in diagnosis of upper GI cancers between these two groups? In patients who had a negative colonoscopy but a positive stool DNA test, there was no higher incidence of such cancers compared to the group who had a negative stool DNA test. And this reinforces what we were just talking about. If your cologuard is positive but colonoscopy is normal, don't go digging any further. And we kind of knew this from the get-go because this test is designed to look for colon cancer and not for something else. I love learning new methods of dealing with food impactions or foreign body retrieval. Several years ago, somebody showed me how to use a clear cap to suction food in, and it works very well. I'm happy they showed that to me. Now, when it comes to retrieving metal objects from the stomach, there is a new method. At least I haven't seen this one before. Why not use a magnet? Well, you ask. Where the heck am I supposed to get a magnet in the endoscopy suite that's small enough to fit through the scope, yet strong enough to actually grip a metal object? Well, there is a magnet that many GI units carry. It comes in the form of a nasal bridle that is used to secure NG tubes. This group from Maine wrote a case series of their experience with three patients who ingested metal objects and collectively had 68 endoscopies. And 66 of these metal objects were successfully retrieved using the bridle method. You basically put a snare through the scope, then you grasp the cloth part of the bridle and draw the bridle right into the scope so now your working channel becomes a magnet. And that way you actually can go very far if you use a colonoscope or something like that. And you can chase metal objects way down into the small bowel if you need to, which is very cool. And there's a cool video on the website of GIE, so check it out. One clear advantage of this method is that if you have lots of fluid or food in the stomach, you don't have to sift through it and magnet will just find a metal object in all the mess for you. There is a million ways to skin a polyp. Here is an interesting study. Can you do better at removing small flat polyps by using underwater technique? This was a randomized controlled trial of small 6 to 9 mm, but also large polyps 10 mm and above, non-pedunculated polyps comparing gas-distended conventional colonoscopy technique versus water-filled lumen. Speaking of large polyps specifically, Putting aside the small polyps, here the comparison for large polyps is lift with a hot snare versus underwater hot snare for large polyps. For the small polyps, it's just straight cold snare in both techniques. They used exacto 9mm cold snare, by the way, which I'm not a fan of, but to each his own. They looked at 250 polyps or so, which is a good number. So which one is better? Here are the stats, and you decide for yourself. In this randomized trial, underwater resection was faster for lesions over 10 millimeters, 2.9 minutes versus 5.6 minutes. And if they were larger than 20 millimeters, 7.3 minutes versus 9.5 minutes. For smaller polyps, it didn't matter much. It looks like they also used less clips with the underwater method, which is good. 
I wonder if the time savings comes from the less clipping portion of the polypectomy as well. The biggest time sink, according to the authors, was the actual fact that you had to lift these large polyps, and you didn't have to do that if you're doing underwater colonoscopy. The rate of incomplete resections were no different, but this was not determined by repeating colonoscopy a few months later. This was just what the pathologist says, or taking four quadrant biopsies as a surrogate. By the way, one caveat in the study is that do you know how many endoscopists did this trial? One. That's a real problem. I do like this study, and I'm very curious about underwater colonoscopy, but data from this trial is not enough for me to routinely do it just yet. Aspirin has made its appearance on the USPSTF guidelines in 2016, with a statement saying that they recommend initiating low-dose aspirin use for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease and colorectal cancer in adults aged 50 to 59, who have a 10% or greater 10-year CVD risk, are not at an increased risk of bleeding, and have a life expectancy of at least 10 years, and are willing to take a low-dose aspirin daily for at least 10 years. Basically, you can potentially benefit from aspirin prevention of colon cancer if you have a high risk of heart disease. A weird statement indeed, but there are many papers trying to show that aspirin prevents colon cancer. My take on such things is that it should be easier to show a benefit when the colon cancer risk is very high, such as in Lynch syndrome. So if aspirin works there, it may also work for your everyday colon cancer prevention. So this next study is from The Lancet and looked at prevention of cancer in Lynch patients who took two doses of aspirin daily for two years, and they looked at 10-year outcomes. And this was a double-blind randomized trial of 800 or so Lynch patients that was done a few years back, and now we are looking at the 10-year follow-up data. And as I said previously, we don't really know the potential mechanism of how aspirin would prevent colon cancer, but looking at Lynch, you can definitely deduce the magnitude of potential benefit. So the difference here is that 9% of patients on aspirin developed cancer versus 13% on placebo, which works out to a number needed to treat of 25, if my math is correct, which is pretty good. It was interesting that there was no difference for non-colorectal Lynch syndrome-related cancers, which makes you wonder, what exactly is aspirin doing for colon cancer and not for other cancers? By the way, the AGA guidelines for Lynch syndrome state, the AGA suggests that aspirin be offered for cancer prevention in patients with Lynch syndrome conditional recommendation, low quality of evidence. So this certainly supports the idea of giving aspirin and supports the USPSTF guideline statement from 2016. Now, if your patient's over 50 and has evidence of cardiovascular disease, there should be no reason why they shouldn't be on aspirin, especially if they have a 10% 10-year CVD risk. Okay, one more guideline before we say goodnight. This one is on eosinophilic esophagitis, one of my favorite topics and it's published in May 2020 by AGA and the Joint Task Force on Allergy Immunology Practice Parameters. Let's jump right through the recommendation statements. There are only 12 of them, really. Statement 1. Use PPI over no treatment. This is straightforward, as about one-third of patients actually achieve histologic remission on PPI alone, the so-called PPI-responsive EOE, at least it used to be called that, and now it's called esophageal eosinophilia that responded to a PPI. You like splitting hairs? I sure do. Statement 2. In patients with EOE, topical glucocorticoids are recommended over no treatment. One important statement here, both ingested fluticasone and budesonide are deemed to be pretty safe. And fluticasone MDI is deemed to be very safe for treatment of EOE, at least based on the data so far. Statement 3. Use topical rather than systemic steroids. 
This one should be obvious, but still needs to be stated. Because there actually was a trial in children who got prednisone versus topical fluticasone, and more kids actually responded to systemic prednisone. So it's not as crazy as you might think. But obviously you don't want patients to be on prednisone for the rest of their lives. So systemic steroids should be avoided. Statement 4. Elemental diet is recommended over no treatment. Clearly this one is not really a real option for most adults, but may work for kids. Statement 5. Empiric 6 food elimination diet is recommended over no treatment. Overall response rate to this is about 70%, which is pretty good. And let's remind ourselves what the six food groups are, milk, wheat, soy, seafood, nuts, and eggs. Some trials actually included corn, finned fish, rice, and legumes. But let's not tell anyone about that. Six, the guidelines actually recommend allergy testing based elimination diet over no treatment. This is shocking to me because I know how wildly inaccurate those allergy tests are. So I'm not sure why this is in the guidelines. I guess that's the Allergy Immunology Society kind of driving this. 7. If you put somebody on steroids short-term and they responded, they probably should be on maintenance therapy. This is conditional, and the patients may choose not to do this, as long as they're okay with the risk of stricture, dysphagia, food impaction, and willing to follow up with you if they're not on any medicine. Statement 8. If patient has dysphagia, you should probably dilate them. If you're worrying about the safety dilations in EOE, you're probably not doing enough of them, because there are many studies showing that it's relatively safe to do as long as you know what you're doing. If EOE patients present with dysphagia, there's almost no excuse for you not to dilate them because many patients do benefit from this. I personally like savory dilators. Some people swear by Maloney's and many people do through the scope balloons, but I don't think they're good enough for a disease that involves the entire esophagus. And speaking of perforations, the largest case series rate of perforation is at 0.4%. So definitely something to discuss with patients not something to shy away from. Statements 9, 10, 11, and 12 through 15, it's basically all the other medicines that have been tried for this, anti-IL-5, anti-IL-13, anti-IL-4, anti-IgE, chromalin sodium, immunomodulators, anti-TNF, and whatever else you can come up with. Probably you shouldn't use this unless it's in context of a clinical trial. That's all. Now that we know the guidelines for EOE, Clearly, in eosinophilic esophagitis, there are a lot of unanswered questions. There is zero guidance given on what to try first. Is it PPI? Is it steroids? Is it elimination diet? We know all these things work better than doing nothing. Where is the nice algorithm what to try first? Also, prolonged therapy data is very weak, and there is no advice on combination therapy given at all. Do you put people on PPIs and steroids at the same time? Well, do you? I don't know. Nobody really knows what the best answer is. But I think the best feature of this guideline is not what's recommended, but rather is what's not recommended and what should be only tried in a clinical trial context. So don't go wildly doing all sorts of crazy things to your patients. My only regret is that the guidelines actually recommend allergy testing. I don't know. I don't like it. And that's all I have for you today. Thanks again for listening to GI Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast. Thanks to hundreds of you who've left reviews on iTunes and other podcast media players. I really appreciate it. And if you haven't already left a review, please write something. It really helps others discover the podcast. If you have articles that you think I should read, please send them to info at GI Pearls and follow me on Twitter at GI underscore Pearls. Thanks again. Bye-bye.